A few years ago, I did a bike tour in the Delta in Northeast Arkansas. Uh, bicycle, not bike, not motorbike, in case you think I'm cooler than I am. Um, it was called the Tour de Sunken Lands. They, it was 50 flat miles at these, with these stops, at these no-name towns with big names attached to it. So Dias had Johnny Cash's home, kind of cool. And we stopped and had coffee and cookies in John Grisham's hometown, pretty neat. And there was this bizarre museum in Broken Tree that was full of old medical apparatuses that you were like walking into a horror movie with clamps and gurneys and drills and methods of keeping someone's mouth open indefinitely. It was awful. But we started and we ended in Tyronza at this place called the Southern Tenant Farmers Museum, which is dedicated to a labor movement in the 30s and 40s called the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. I don't know if you've heard of it. So I clacked through this place awkwardly on my bike shoes, at first giggling at a museum with the acronym STFU pasted everywhere. <laughs> and then as I went along, wonder unfolded as I realized that this sleepy, flat, no-name, monoculture land was actually once the hotbed of a socialist laborer uprising where the poor actually united over color lines in Jim Crow, Arkansas. Now the Southern Tenant Farmers Union was not just reacting to the long-standing exploitative agriculture system of the South, but particularly at that time to the fact that the government in the New Deal was offering financial benefits to landowners, ostensibly that that money would trickle down from the landowners to the tenant farmers and the sharecroppers. Turns out those owners weren't too interested in passing on the profit. Try to keep your shock in check. <laughs> Everyone knows how humans work with power. How we work when we get power. You can hear the landowners of the 30s and 40s now, can't you? Look, tenant farmers have been taking care of themselves on their wages for all this time. If I get the subsidy, then I get to buy more land. Think of all the jobs I will produce then. We don't let go of power. We consolidate it. We rationalize it. Eventually, we make laws of it. But we know how it works. Major uprisings like these in history, almost uniformly violent, have had to do with the land, tenant farmers, and the people who claim to own them. And we? Well, it depends on where we are in history. In the moment of revolt, we would like everyone to just settle down and be peaceful. Things are not that bad. Post-revolt, though, looking backwards historically, we are never on the landowner's side. 
When the peasants revolt because their lands are overtaxed, or they can't afford to live, or they have nothing that is their own to tie them into community, revolution happens, and history ends up calling those systems oppressive and unlivable. In biblical times now, none of the prophets were on the side of the overseers. From the very beginning, they warned of the danger of the centralized power of the king. You know the stories. They'll take the best of your land. The king will take the best of your crops. The king will take the best of your children and put them in the army. Hosea, Amos, you know their refrain. You hear it here. You have forgotten the poor, and so the Lord will forget you. Isaiah's song this morning of the vineyard, the very next verse after this depiction, all the way back in time here, the depiction of this vineyard being trampled, he says who his warning is for, and it says this, you who add house upon house and join field upon field until there is no room for anyone but you. You forget the poor, and God's judgment waits for you. Historically, it looks like it happens at the hands of the poor. This is an old, repeated story. So Jesus starts telling today's parable about a vineyard. We call it the parable of the wicked tenants. But look at this landowner. He buys a vineyard, but doesn't stick around to sit under his own vine or eat from under his own fig tree. How many vineyards does he have, anyway? He certainly has plenty of slaves. The tenant farmers, their lives spent tending the systems of vines and fig trees for others to enjoy, grow restless and rebellious. They band together. They grow violent. Everyone listening knows that this is an old, repeated story. And no doubt the people listening, the Jewish people, were actually living their lives as tenants, oppressed under the Roman occupation, with unrest spreading among them as fast as Bermuda grass, paying favor and taxes and tribute to a god named Caesar who had bought the land and built some walls and now then lived in a country far away. So maybe we wouldn't actually feel bad for the owner at first. But the listeners in our gospel really seem to grab onto this. The man sends some slaves to settle with their fellow slaves. They're rejected. Some of them are killed. The owner sends his own son, hoping they'll see reason. They toss him out and kill him too. What will happen to these people? Jesus asks. And the scribes and the Pharisees right, walk right into the trap, wipe them all out. It seems, from our vantage point, I think, so obvious where Jesus is going, the trap that he's laid, that they walk right into. But maybe it's not when you're in it, thinking you're the landlord when you're actually the tenant. 
I think it has something to do with the fact that we know so well the feeling of what it is like to be wronged more than we like to acknowledge our own powerlessness. We all know the feeling of turning your back for one second and the dog has chewed up the couch from being stuck inside all day and your three-year-old snuck up on her sister and bit her on the cheek for no reason or the mechanic actually seemed to make the knocking sound that much worse in the car. The lies of a loved one have been uncovered, characters revealed, Yet another person has let you down or didn't show up or refused to be reasonable. These things that we know, that we love, that we feel like we own, they go awry and our control mechanism tightens like we can correct the story. The factors and fears beyond our control pile up and we become small kings, landowners who will wipe out the rebellion and disorder the toes out of line that we meet. We are never the tenants. Who are they? It depends on who you're reading. Matthew says they are the religious authorities of the day. The early church would say they are the Jews as a whole. Luther would say they are the Catholic Church and the Pope, and probably the Jews too. And I can think of more than a few groups who would say definitely the Episcopalians. <laughs> you read the story though, and it just might be our whole scattered, shockingly violent, unreliable world where it seems like every time you turn around in this vineyard, children of God are wantonly killed. What is to be done, Jesus asks us. The story doesn't end with God following the Pharisees' advice, or ours. The son dies, the tenants do not. The walls come down, the vine keeps growing. There's another chapter to this story. What does it mean for a vineyard, as in Isaiah's song, to have its walls brought down and its hedges removed? It means this landowner's vineyard can grow beyond the tending of its few tenant farmers into the community, into the world. It may be vulnerable there, but there's nothing left to hold it in. It means that even now there is a way to live a life that is enough, the peaceable kingdom that leaves a heritage for all. It's why we come to this table week after week. It's why we keep practicing resurrection.